I love this church. I do. I see lots of really good things happening in our midst. Things that belong to salvation. I see community groups meeting together and praying together and being shaped by God's word together. I see men and women stewarding their gifts, using their resources to meet the needs of others. I see discipling relationships blossoming, older and younger men and women investing in one another, stirring up one another to love and to godly living. See classrooms full of children who are being taught the word and who are being shown what it looks like to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus. I see lives slowly but surely being transformed one step at a time. And all of these things are things that belong to salvation. Things that serve as visible evidence that God is at work in our midst. In our passage this morning, Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 20, the writer of, he the writer of Hebrews takes a moment to tell his Jewish Christian audience that he sees things like this in them. Things that belong to salvation. And this word of encouragement couldn't be coming at a better time. <laughs> because in the previous few sections, if you've been here or if you're familiar with the letter of Hebrews, in the previous few sections to this one, the writer of Hebrews has had to say some pretty tough things to the Jewish Christian audience that he's writing to. In chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews began to give a deep theological explanation as to how and why Jesus is superior to the Levitical high priests who had long presided over the Jewish people. Now, the fact that Jesus is superior to the Levitical high priests, it's an important concept for all Christians to understand. But back in chapter 5, Almost as soon as the writer started to get into it, he had to pause his explanation because his Jewish Christian audience is too immature to understand and to track with him. By this time, in the lives of these men and women to whom the book, the letter of Hebrews was first written, by this time in their Christian walk, they should have been able to understand the deeper concepts of Christ and they should have even been able to teach those things to those whom they were discipling. But unfortunately, they could only handle, still at this point in their Christian walk, they could only handle the most basic concepts of the Christian faith. Christian, uh, concepts like initial repentance and faith and baptism. And because of their ongoing immaturity, the writer of Hebrews issued to them a very sobering warning in the passage that we looked at last week. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And, and here's a summary of the warning that was issued to them and to us last week. Professing Christians who are not steadily growing and maturing in the knowledge and character of Christ and in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Professing Christians who are not advancing beyond the altar call infancy of the faith. 
they really have good reason to question the authenticity of their faith. Because genuine Christians slowly but surely progress. Genuine Christians do not endlessly regress and they do not lie dormant for long periods of time. This warning that the writer of Hebrews issued last week would have no doubt rattled many of the Jewish Christians who were the first to hear it. And I think it's safe to say that it rattled some of us. But that, brothers and sisters, is a good sign. If you were at all or are at all rattled by my summary of the warning that that we covered last week, if you're at all rattled by that, if you're at all stirred, that it's time to grow up in the knowledge and character of Christ and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you're at all rattled by that, that is a good sign because you see, biblical warnings work a lot like defibrillators. Are you familiar with those medical devices? Defibrillators have no lasting effect on hearts that are already dead. And neither do biblical warnings. If you were or are at all even remotely stirred by biblical warnings such as last week's, that's a good sign. It's a good sign that your heart is responsive to the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Praise God. The writer of Hebrews is confident that his Jewish Christian audience will respond to the warning we covered last week because as we're about to see in our passage, he is confident that they are genuine followers of Jesus. And so I'd invite you to follow along. As I read, today we're going to split this in half, in in two portions. I'm going to read the first half of our passage, Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12. And before I do that, I'd ask that you you would pray with me before we read this first part. Let's pray. Father God, by your most merciful Holy Spirit, I pray, we pray, that you would defibrillate our hearts, that you would grant to us the precious assurance through conviction, through encouragement, through bolstered hearts. Grant us, Lord, the precious assurance that Christ guarantees us that we are yours forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first the first half of our passage, Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, and I'll say, you know, th- though we have just issued a heavy-handed warning, right? In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in, the serving, in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises." 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's part one, right? The fruit of salvation is the heading that we might give to those, that first portion of this passage. Whereas the root of salvation is the heading we might give to the next set of verses that we will read here in, in a short while. So if you're a note taker, these are the two points that will outline the remainder of our time. They rhyme. I'm pretty happy about that. Number one, the fruit of salvation. And number two, the root of salvation. The fruit and the root. Let's look at number one, the fruit of salvation. Though the Jewish Christians were nowhere near as mature as they ought to be, there were signs of genuine saving faith among them. And this is precisely what the writer of Hebrews draws our attention to, especially in these first couple of verses. He's, you know, I'll paraphrase. Though, though we are concerned about your ongoing immaturity, there's reason to be concerned about that. Though, though we are concerned about it and though we have been compelled to warn you about it, you are indeed beloved by God. You are beloved by God. And we are sure of it because we have seen in you things that belong to salvation. And we haven't just seen it. God himself has seen it in you. Things that belong to salvation. And he is not unjust to overlook these things. One of the things that God will not overlook in you is that you have put and you are continuing to put in Real sacrificial time and effort as you work toward and serve the good of the saints. Real, consistent, lasting servanthood is a fruit of salvation. It is a mark of genuine faith. So let me personalize this for you for a moment. You might not think that your weekly efforts of folding bulletins and preparing cafe food and sweeping floors and caring for toddlers in the nursery and parking in the back parking lot so that others can park closely and hosting your community group in your house and cooking a meal for someone in the church and checking on those you haven't seen lately and writing a note of encouragement to a brother or sister and praying with a fellow believer during our fellowship time in the cafe. You might not think that your ongoing efforts in these kinds of things constitute as a, constitutes as a, as a fruit of salvation, as a mark of genuine faith. You might not think that. But God's word right here in verse 10 says otherwise. What's more is that it says that your ongoing effort in these kinds of seemingly insignificant tasks, your ongoing effort in these things is in fact an act of love toward God himself. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name by serving the saints as you are still doing. 
Marvel with me at that for a second. Marvel with me that whenever you and I lift a finger to serve one another, we are in fact lifting a heart song of praise to God. That puts a whole different spin on folding bulletins, right? And we need your help in that. It also puts a whole different spin on joining a facilities team after today's gathering. We need your help in that. It also puts a whole different spin on giving a few hours to host PGP, Persephone is Giving Plate, the nonprofit who comes in here every single week and they cook meals for those who are in need. It puts a whole different spin on servanthood when we really chew on verse 10 that whenever you and I lift a finger to serve one another, we are raising a heart song of love to God for his name. It's kind of astounding. And we desire that each and every one of you in this room would give yourself to this. Verse 11 is really, it's an invitation to those who are on the sideline. We desire each and every one of you, the writer of Hebrews says, to show the same earnestness by putting on the servanthood of Christ and thereby tasting the full assurance of hope until he returns. If you're on the sideline, we desire each one of you to join us, to show the same earnestness and to then taste the full assurance of hope until the return of our king. Did you know, did you know that God wants you to be assured of your salvation in Christ? Did you know that God wants you to be certain that you belong to him? Did you know that he wants you to be freed from being so preoccupied with whether you belong to him that you're failing to live like you do belong to him right now? Did you know that he wants to free you from that? With our eyes on verse 11, could it be that part of the reason why so many of us feel unassured unassured about our faith and its salvation is because we've really yet to start walking in Christ-like servanthood, the kind of servanthood that evidences that we are saved. Show me a Christian. We're going to get intense for a second. Show me a Christian who barely makes it to the Sunday gathering who consumes the music and the message and the coffee without so much as lifting a finger. Show me a Christian whose every moment of free time equals me time. And I'll show you a Christian who has barely tasted, if ever, the full assurance of hope in Christ that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Oh, but we want each one of you to experience the full assurance of hope is the writer's point here. Oh, we desire each one of you to show some earnestness, to put on the servanthood of Jesus and thereby taste the full assurance of hope as we await his imminent return. And a good place to start is by simply crying out right now, right 
in our hearts. God, by your Holy Spirit, give me some earnestness. Verse 11, give me some earnestness. Cry out to God for some spirit-breathed energy. Verse 12, because the fruit of salvation and part of what kindles our assurance, part of what kindles our assurance that we belong to Jesus is our growing desire to roll up our sleeves and serve one another like Jesus. Overcoming sluggishness, goodness, that's me a lot of days. Overcoming sluggishness and by imitating those who through faith and patience and persistence inherit the promises of God. Now, it's a good point to transition to point number two, the root of salvation. And and it's a good moment to do this because we must not get the fruit of our salvation mixed up with the root of our salvation. If we put the fruit before the root, if we put the cart before the horse, hear this, if we put the fruit before the root, then our salvation becomes about what we do instead of what Jesus has already done on our behalf. The gospel is at stake here. So, point number two, the root of salvation. In verses 13 through 20, the writer of Hebrews reminds the Jewish Christian and us a very blessed reminder at this point in time our salvation does not depend on our fruit our fruit is a result of but our salvation is not dependent upon our fruit because our salvation was fixed long before you and I would even begin to bear fruit hallelujah so I invite you to follow along as I read now Chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore according to himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Sweet mercy, there's a lot in that. This is the word of the Lord. We'll be here for about two more hours. Here we go. No, I'm kidding. As you can probably tell, as, uh, you know, toward the end of, of, of that segment, 
the writer of Hebrews is about to pick back up the theological explanation that he put on hold back in the beginning of chapter 5. The explanation as to how and why Jesus, the line and order of Melchizedek, superior to the Levitical high priest. Now, Lord willing, in three weeks' time, after Palm Sunday and after Easter Sunday, we'll dive into the explanation of this. We're going to put a two-week pause on our series in Hebrews. Lord willing, we'll come back to it, and we'll get to dive more so into the priest after the order of Melchizedek concept of Jesus. But for the remainder of our time today, the next couple of hours, let's consider what's being said here, right? Back in the book of Genesis, God in his mercy chose a guy named Abraham. And Abraham was a lot like us, if you're familiar with the story. He was an average guy who was just as beset with weakness as we are. And yet, God made him a wonderful, unconditional promise that is repeated for us here in verse 14. God told Abraham, surely I, the Lord, I will bless you and multiply you. Not because of anything you've done. I'm just going to do that. Now, this was quite a promise for God to make because Abraham was older, kind of pretty old, considerably old, and he didn't have any kids, and his wife was considerably old, and she wasn't able to have kids. Nevertheless, God made this strange promise. God, God, God promised Abraham that from Abraham, he would bring forth a multitude of descendants and those descendants would comprise the redeemed family of God on earth. And in order for this outlandish promise to be easier to believe for, for Abraham and all other fallen men, in order to, to show more convincingly that this promise was as good as gold, God himself guaranteed it with an oath. Didn't need to. He did for our sake. Now, if you and I, heaven forbid, we don't have a court date this afternoon or something like that. But if we were to take the stand in a courtroom, we would be expected to swear by the name of God with a hand on a Bible that, we, that what we say is true. But when God made this promise to Abraham, verse 13, he had no one greater by whom to swear. Who's greater than God? And so God swore by himself, just giving his word as plain as day. Surely I, surely Abraham, you hear me? Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now catch this with me because it's significant for our time this morning. Before Abraham began to bear the fruit of this promise. Before he held a son named Isaac in his arms. Before the fruit of it took place, Abraham simply believed that God could do this and would do this. Even though from a human perspective, this promise seemed impossible to hold up to, 
even though it, it, it seemed improbable, I'm old, I have no kids, my wife is old, she can't have kids, what gives, Lord? Even though, from a human perspective, it seemed impossible, Abraham believed that God would do what he said he would do. And thus, verse 15, Abraham, believing, waited patiently, and he obtained the promise that God made to him. Now, why is the writer of Hebrews drawing our attention to this? There are no doubt a number of reasons, and we do not have the time to cover all of them, but here's one. You and I, like the Jewish Christians, you and I, in our own various ways, are floundering in areas of immaturity and fruitlessness. Let's be honest with ourselves. If we're honest with ourselves, we are not really where we probably should be by this time in our spiritual walk. Our devotion to and our understanding of God's word is spotty. Our rhythms of prayer are maybe at best inconsistent, maybe, maybe non-existent. We are really slow to put off the things of the world that cling so closely. That long line of things we spent time reading in Colossians 2 and 3 of sexual immorality and idolatry and greed and covetousness and more. The list goes on. We're very slow, you and I, if we're honest to put those things to death. And we're very slow, we're even slower to cry out for with earnestness for the fruit of the Holy Spirit to bloom. Love, genuine love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We're very slow to put off the things of the world and even slower to put on the things to which we're called. Now thank God that yours and my salvation, thank God that yours and my assurance of salvation does not rest upon our performance. Thank God that we have somewhere to run. Second half of verse 18. Thank God that there is a strong encouragement for us this morning. As feeble and finite, weak and wandering as I am, there is a strong encouragement for me and there is one for you. A hope that you and I can actually cling to that goes well beyond our performance, thank God. A sure and steadfast anchor for our weary and discouraged and wandering souls an eternal hope that will not give up on us. If you and I simply believe, like Abraham, if you and I simply believe that God has done what he said he would do by nailing our sins to his son on a cross, if we simply believe that he has done what he said he would do, 
In that after Jesus was buried, he also was raised in victory for any and all who call upon his name with the mustard seed size belief. My performance, all I can conjure up, and it's even a gift of yours. All I can conjure up is about this much belief like the, like the father. I think it's in Mark chapter 7 where he, I believe, but help my unbelief because it's insurmountable. Right? If you and I simply believe that God has done what he said he would do by nailing our sins to his son to a cross and by raising his son to life so that as our forerunner, as our first representative, he would pierce through the veil between earth and heaven and he would write with his blood-stained fingers our names in blood right before the eyes of the Father. Simple mustard-sized belief is what secures that. It's as simple as that. It is this simple belief that is the essence of faith and faith is what makes us right forever in God's eyes. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. So the Apostle Paul has just told the church in Galatia that Abraham believed God, just simply believed that God would do what he was going to do, and he did. And Abraham obtained it. And because Abraham believed, it was counted to him as righteousness. All the righteousness that Christ would secure in his life to, after, after Abraham, all that righteousness was placed upon, imputed within Abraham because he believed God. Now listen to what Galatians 3 verses 6 and 7 says. Just as Abraham believed God, so then... All of you who believe God are of faith. And all of you who are of faith, who simply believe God, you are the descendants of Abraham that's being talked about here. I will bless you and I will multiply you. Galatians 4, 28, you brothers and sisters are the descendants that God promised to bring forth if you believe that God and all of the righteous requirement that he requires to be brought near to him in his forever kingdom family, he has afforded all of that to you by simply trusting that Christ earned it. He sealed it on the cross. He fully justified you in his resurrection. And that is the root. That is the root. That is the foundation. That is the anchor. I often think of my own faith like this, I, 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 I see myself kind of paddling out in the middle of a windy lake in some sort of rickety kayak. But you know what's holding me is this 50-ton anchor at the bottom of that lake that will not let me move despite how feeble my kayak is. He will not let me move. That's a sure and steady anchor that we can cling to by mustard size belief this morning and so it begs the invitation 
If our salvation is so fixed when God makes this unconditional promise, we see the foreshadowing of it here to Abraham. Here's the unconditional promise to you. Whomever you are, wherever you're at, do you trust that Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and his ascension as your forerunner, do you believe that he's accomplished everything needed to sign, seal, and deliver you forever and ever into the kingdom of God? If you believe that, confess that with your mouth because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. I would urge you to believe that. I would urge you to be baptized as an outward demonstration of your inward faith. I would urge that. Believe, trust, obey. And then you and I and all of us here in this room, here's what we can and ought and must do this morning. You feel stagnant in your, in your faith. You feel, you feel the weight of immaturity. You feel the weight of, you've not really been making a lot of progress. Would you with me and for me and to me, can we just cry out together and ask that the Holy Spirit would stir up an earnestness in us? He would light a fire in our souls and that we would get moving because we've got a lot of righteousness that already covers us, but we get the enjoyment of growing up into it and putting it on. We get the enjoyment of that. So let's pray. And then we have a lot of singing to do. So let's do that now. Father, thank you for this steady anchor, your son. My performance is so often terrible, and I thank you that you are not calling me to bear enough fruit to make it into and through the audition process. And you're not calling any one of us here to do that. What you're calling us to is to look upon the cross and that empty tomb and your son at your right side right now. And we are to cry out, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know my performance is terrible. Please save me. And please, by your Holy Spirit, would you stir in me a passion an earnestness, a decided discipline to right now, I'm going to start walking in the righteousness that already covers and defines me and courses through my veins because freedom and joy and the praise of your name awaits me and you. I pray that you would do this. And I pray, Lord, that you would stir up in us this desire also to taste a little bit more of the assurance of our hope that we have, that we would put on servanthood. Servanthood. That you would give to us the mercy to step aside from all of our me time and to steward a few hours each week to serve our brothers and sisters here within this body and to thereby love your name and to sing a heart song of praise to your name because when we serve, it stirs up assurance and when we serve, it glorifies your name. It is an act of worship. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.